Welcome to the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast from Nashville, Tennessee. I am your host, John Martin Keith. Celebrities, working class musicians, and people who work behind the scenes in all areas of the music industry will share their stories, encourage you, and give practical advice of ways you can make a living doing what you love in the music industry. This episode is brought to you by Edenbrook Productions. Edenbrook Productions is the company I founded to help musicians grow in their craft. Are you a songwriter, but maybe you've been told your songs aren't quite there yet? Or are your songs ready, but you don't feel stage ready? Or maybe music is your passion, but you feel imprisoned by your day job and you don't know what to do next to make your dream a reality. Well, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. We offer consulting services via phone call, Skype, and FaceTime. And for the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast listeners, we're offering an introductory one-hour consultation special. Click on the link in the show notes to contact me, and let's get you making a living in the music industry. Hey everyone, welcome to the show today. This week I'm talking with music industry icon Jason Davis. Jason is an entertainment industry executive with a broad range of titles including award-winning songwriter and author, independent record label president, executive TV producer, entertainment consultant, former senior VP of A&R for Dolly Parton's CTK Management Company, and much more. We are discussing when and why to hire an entertainment lawyer, the difference in managing a producer versus an artist, and what happens when you reach the top of the music industry and are still empty. That is a powerful conversation alone. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Please get your pen and paper and get ready to take lots of amazing notes. Hey guys, I am talking with Jason Davis. Uh, Jason, how are you today? I'm doing well, Marty. Thanks Man, for having me on. Yes, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm super excited to have you on. Um, you do tons and tons of things in the music industry over the years, over like 24 years or so, something like that. We've been in the industry for about the same amount of time, just doing different things. Um, so unfortunately, our paths have not crossed yet until today, and I'm very excited that it finally did. So um, real quick, tell the audience who you are, um, kind of all the different companies that you work with or have been a part of, and then we're going to back up and kind of go from there, but just kind of let everybody know who you are and what you do in general. Sure. Uh, my name is Jason Davis. I've been in the music industry about 24 years, uh, broke into the industry as a songwriter, uh, <clears throat> ended up winning an ASCAP award, uh, started developing a really strong passion to find artists and try to develop artists and really wanted to figure out how do you get the artist a record deal? Um, how do I get artists into record labels? How do I get uh, a deal from record labels? How does that all work? Um, that was something that was for some reason fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and over the years, uh, been a part of companies. Uh, I was, uh, head of A&R for Dolly Parton's management company for about four years. Uh, I've had a company called 117 for the entire time, 20, 24 years. Um, I have a company called Noble Management that uh, I've had for about seven years now, maybe okay. heading on eight years, and um, a booking company called Higher Level Agency and um, a company called Radar Label Group. Uh, for many years as well. So you're saying you're not bored? 
No, I'm definitely not bored. Uh, <laughs> I remember when I was a kid in high school, I used to always hope that somebody would call me or reach out to me or, you know, I would not be bored. And uh, I often think back to those times and say, wow, uh, people I, definitely I I are, are calling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. I wish I was bored sometimes, right? Yes. yes. Uh, well, you definitely have a full plate doing a lot of different things. You, you sound like me, you know, I've got like seven or eight different things that I do in the industry that allow me to do music full time. I think you could probably just do one of those things and that would be full time for you. So it sounds like you have like seven, eight full time jobs just alone. Um, so, which is amazing to, to hear all that stuff. And we want, I want to dive into that more as we go, but let's back up just for a minute. Tell us, um, where you're from, what got you into music to begin with and what kind of started you on this journey? So I'm from Northwest New Jersey. Um, later on in my life that did play a helpful role because once I figured out it was music, I was only living about an hour and a half outside of New York city where a lot of the record labels were. And back when I broke into the business, uh, New York was a very hot market in the music industry. Uh, so, but I, I broke into the business. Uh, I just was always, um, as a kid forming bands, uh, always wanted to write songs. Um, wrote my first song literally at five years old with the next door, <laughs> the, the kid across the street. Uh, yeah. amazingly, he still remembers that song. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. And then, um, you know, I would say at 13 years old, formed my first band. Uh, we started writing songs right away. Uh, at 15 years old, I started writing songs on my own with a guitar in my bedroom. And that was really, that was the big spark for me. When I had my own guitar and started writing songs on my own at 15, that was big. Um, It it unlocked something and it just, I didn't have to wait to go down the street to my friend's house to write a song um, or see if he was available um, because he played guitar. So um, I would say from that point on, 15 to about 23, I probably, uh, in the beginning years would write maybe 30 songs a year. And then as I kept going over those, you know, eight years of growing as a songwriter, uh, would probably write maybe 40 or 50 songs a year. Um, I did that for about eight years. And then, um, every year I would record songs with my friends. I gravitated to friends that played music and I, would fall deeply in love with friends in high school that had recording equipment because right. I did not. Yeah. Um, and uh, I met a, I met a couple of friends in high school that had recording equipment and I just like grabbed onto their leg and would not let go. Uh, yeah. And I'd be over their house, their parents' house all the time recording stuff. And so I, I don't know exactly how many songs I recorded over those eight years, but my guess would be probably about, maybe 30. Um, I'd probably record maybe two to four songs a year that I thought were my best songs that year mm-hmm. and, uh, give them out to friends, family, co coworkers. Uh, and then when I was 23, uh, I did what I always did. I gave out a song to friends, family, coworkers. And, uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but people started making copies of the song and sharing it. And the song before the internet traveled uh, probably about 2,500 miles from upstate New York to Nashville and landed on the desk of a guy named Grant Cunningham, who is 
head of A&R for a company called Sparrow Records, which is oh, yeah. today Capital Christian. Yeah. Uh, and he just tracked me down. And uh, I got a fo- I literally got a phone call at 23 years old uh, saying that this song landed on his desk and he wanted to put it on a record and they wanted to make it the first radio single. And the song ended up becoming a hit. And um, the following year I landed probably seven more songs I wrote on records. Okay. Um, and that I was kind of off and running from there. So when, when he signed you to record that song um, and it took off in order to get those other songs recorded, did he sign you to a deal or did he refer someone to like, how did you end up getting those other songs recorded? Cause most people, just so people know that you don't get a song, you don't just get a song recorded. Nobody just does that, you know, onto a major label. It's got to go through channels to make, to make those things happen. Yeah. So I, I didn't get signed as an artist. Uh, that would have been fun, but, uh, I, he just basically took the song and, uh, landed it. There was an artist named Aaron Benward that they yep. had signed. Uh, that was in a decent size duo group in Christian yeah. music with his father. Yeah. I remember them. Yep. And, uh, so it was Aaron's first solo record. It was on Sparrow and, uh, uh, Grant Cunningham, the A and R, took two songs that I wrote and put it on that record. Uh, okay. But but the first song that he took for that record uh, was the one that landed on his desk. So okay, so but once you got those couple of songs recorded, you said you had what seven more after that? Yeah. So he took he took uh, three of my songs. Okay. So there was another artist he was working with at the time named Tammy Trent. And oh, yeah. uh, he, he took a song I wrote called your love pursues and put it on her record. Uh, and then it was another crazy situation. Uh, probably six months before that, there was a girl that re- wrote and recorded some songs with me and one of my friends in his parents house. And, uh, we probably wrote, I think we wrote, I wrote, I mainly wrote them, but it was four songs. Um, and she ends up getting uh, a record deal with Warner Music. Uh, with At the time, it was called Wea, uh, Warner Electra in Atlantic. And um, she just literally calls us up one day and says, hey, by the way, I got a record deal. Oh, wow. And they want you guys to co-produce the record if you're open to it. And uh, they love these four songs. And so next thing you know, I landed four more songs on a record. And, and, and um, producing. Yeah, and co-producing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, which just so the audience knows, like that's not necessarily a normal way of going about landing these kinds of deals, right? Oh, it, it was it was you know? so it was so god, you know, because I, I didn't know how to. I, I didn't even know you could get into the music industry. I was from a really small town, and I all those years I was writing songs. I never once had a thought of maybe I'll get into the music industry or maybe this will help me get into the music business. I I actually didn't think that was possible. I was always writing songs and wanting to record my songs because that was like my hobby. It was, it was my love. Like it was my passion. Um, I was, I never thought it would lead me into the music industry. So uh, it was just a total, total God thing that first year. Do you remember how the, that was like a, I'm sure it was a cassette tape, probably your first song, the one that got that got on the record, that got moved from New Jersey or upstate New York, made it to its way to Nashville. Was that on cassette back back in the day? Uh, I'm 
pretty confident it was recorded on cassette for some reason. I mean, it might have been on a CD. I just I really can't remember. Okay. Uh, if people most, don't know, if people don't know what a cassette is. Go look up a cassette. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, a lot of people yeah. are like, "What is that?" Right. I, I, I for some reason I think it was CD, but I can't remember. That's fine. Uh, yeah, I do remember back then most of what I was recording and doing, you know, was landing on cassette tapes for sure. Do you, so the the reason I'm asking is I'm I'm curious if you know today who who it was that got it from upstate down yeah. to Nashville, like who made that connection to get yes. it down there. Yeah, so there was a band. It w- it was definitely spreading and people were sharing it. And then there was a band at the time in Christian music uh, named Burlap to Cashmere. Oh yeah. And they were a pretty hot band at that moment. Yep. And one of the guys in the band, just somebody shared it with one of the guys in the band. And when th- that band broke up, uh, one of the guys in the band was trying to get a solo record deal. And he put my song with me singing it as a demo on his demo, um, literally with me singing it. And was like shopping it to labels saying, Hey, this, if you sign me, this is a song I, I have access to. Okay. Uh, and they, uh, the labels were not interested in him, but capital was interested in that song. Yeah. Wow. That's a very unique way to go about it. And that's a really cool thing that he did for you. Maybe not yeah. even knowing he was doing it on purpose, you know, doing it yeah. that way, but that's totally, that, that's cool that it happened, you know, that yeah. way. Yeah. Um, so once you're in, kind of got your foot in the door, you're getting some songs recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the next steps? What happens next for you? Yeah, so I, I finally I realized, okay, if this is happening, if these doors just open, I'm I'm clearly good enough to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I absolutely hated my job at the time. Uh, I was working for a home improvement company, and it was not my passion. Right. So I. I remember when my first check showed up from that song captured, um, I, I literally was like, I, I have to go after this. You know, I have to figure this out because I did, everything was happening through like these flukes, you know, and doors just opening. So what I did is I know this sounds so silly, but I knew nothing. Um, I was living near New York and I had a thought. I thought to myself, I wonder if there's record labels in New York City because mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's really like how little I knew. Yeah, and um, I w- I took out my at now at the time it was a CD collection. I took out my CD collection, and I or maybe it was cassettes, but I I wrote down the name of every record label I could find on the spine of all my records on a notepad. Yep, and I called up four one one information, and I. I'll never forget it. The operator comes on. I said, hi, is there a Sony music in New York city? And, and I just hear, please hold for your number. And I was like, no (laughs) way. I was like, no way. It's like an hour from here. And, uh, so I started calling information regularly, getting all these numbers. And, uh, the first call I ever tried to make was to the Sony building in New York, 550 Madison Avenue. And I called, I called up the bill, I called up Sony and a secretary answered and she said, uh, you know, who are you looking for? I said, and I didn't even know what A&R was. So I said, you know, is there somebody that handles music <laughs> for the for Sony? <laughs> and uh, she's like, well, do you know who you're looking for? I said, no. 
and she said, you, you have to, uh, you have to have a relationship with somebody mm-hmm. here. Uh, yeah. you have to know their title and, uh, you cannot like you, you have to either be a manager or a lawyer to get uh, in the to, building, to be able to like pitch music. Okay. So I looked up, I literally like started looking up and researching, like, what is the titles of people that do music at record labels? And I found A&R. So, uh, I thought what, that, what year was this roughly? Uh, this is probably 1998. Okay. Um, 99 maybe. Okay. And so I, I call, I, I, I thought that night I said, okay, I have to be a, a lawyer or a manager. Clearly I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I, and and you'd have to go to law school for that. And so I'd be lying if I said I was a lawyer, which is really weird. Uh, but I thought to myself, I said, you know, is there any, like, there's no degree for a manager. Mm-hmm. Is there, is there any rule that would say that I can't manage myself? Right. And, uh, I wasn't sure. I, I wasn't sure if I was breaking the rules or not, but I didn't know of one. So I called up the next day to Sony and I said, hi, it was same girl. And I said, hi, uh, my name is Jason Davis. I'm a manager and I represent a songwriter and I would like to speak to a and R. And she says, please hold. I said, <laughs> I, I said, I can't believe it. I got through. <laughs> and, uh, and I literally heard, I got the voicemail of the head of A&R for a company back then called 550 music, which was a record label through Sony. And, um, and I literally got through and it was a guy named Marvin Peart, who I later found out had signed Macy Gray and three LW and, uh, Mandy Moore. And, uh, he was the head of A&R and I just started, uh, leaving messages for him every three to four days. And after about a week and a half, I called one day, um, and he actually picked up his phone and I couldn't believe it. Uh, (laughs) and I said, and the only thing I could think of was I said, hi, Marvin. He goes, yes. I said, my name is Jason. Um, I have a hit song. And he, and he said, you have a hit song? And I said, I have a hit song. Can I come in and play it for you? He goes, sure. Wow. He's like, are you free in an hour and a half? I said, yes. And I lived exactly an hour and a half from New York City. So I grabbed my backpack with my CDs in it, ran to my car, jumped in, and literally made it into his office like right within an hour and a half. Wow. Uh, so that's, that's kind of th- – those were the next steps. And then I just started begging – literally begging A&Rs, like cold calling labels, begging, pleading for meetings. I remember this one woman, Lee Denae, she was uh, a head of A&R for Columbia Records, and uh, she had signed John Mayer and um, a, f- a few other pretty cool groups. Uh, Sean Mullins was one of them. And uh, I called her literally and left her messages for three months before I got a meeting with her. I would call her once a week for three months leaving messages. Uh, I left messages for about a month. And then finally she called me back, but I wasn't home. And I came home and realized I missed her call, which crushed me. And then I tried to call her right back and I didn't get her. And I kept calling once a week. About another month and a half later, she tried to call me back again and I missed the call. Oh, no. I couldn't believe it. Oh, goodness. Uh, Tried for another two weeks, and then one day she called, and I got I got her. 
And, um, and I went into her office probably a week later. The meeting was only about 15 minutes. You know, it was about three hours of driving and it was a 15 minute meeting. But what, what I learned from that meeting and I found very interesting was it took me three months of calling to get a meeting. Once I met her in person, even though it was 15 minutes, for the rest of the time that she was at Columbia, anytime I would email her or anytime I would call her, I could get a meeting with her within a week. And if I emailed her, she'd always email me back right away. Mm-hmm. And so it was that in-person connection that I learned like, wow, I worked very, very hard to get this one connection. But once I, once you connect with a human being, um, as long as you're keeping the bar high on what you send people, that relationship is pretty much always there. Yeah. So uh, let me, I want to back up just for a second. So with the A&R guy at Sony, Marvin, correct? Is that his name? Marvin Peart, yeah. Marvin. Um, once you finally got to go in and meet with him, you hour and a half to get there, you got there, you, you played him a song. What was his reaction to that? And did you were you able to keep a relationship going with him as well? Yeah, his reaction was absolutely zero. Um, okay. I played him. I play. I played him the song for. I walked in his office. I was so nervous. Um, and he asked me. I think Mad uh, Madden for PlayStation had just come out. Yep. Um, and he had Madden. He had placed a PlayStation in his office, and he asked me if I wanted to play. And I was so nervous. I, I said no. But then when the meeting lasted for four minutes and I left, I kicked myself. I was like, I could have been in his office for like 30 minutes, like yeah. playing a video game with him. You yeah. know? Uh, so I walked in. I was nervous. He asked me if I wanted to play PlayStation. That threw me off. I said no. I was too scared. Uh, he listened to my song, which was the best song I'd probably written in nine years or eight years. Uh, he had zero reaction to it at all um, and asked me if I had anything else. I said no. Uh, I realized that the meeting was about to end, which I wasn't expecting. So I felt like in shock that the meeting was ending so quick. Mm-hmm. And I was racking my brain trying to figure out uh, how to stay in the meeting. So I asked him, I was like, did you hear that chorus? Because it's really catchy. And uh, he said, would you like me to listen to this chorus again? I said, could you please listen to it again? And he listened to the first verse and first chorus again. Okay. Had no reaction for a second time. And, uh, and I'm trying to figure out how to stay in his office. And I said, so the only thing I could think of, as I said, how does somebody get a job here? Like, how do you get a job at Sony? And he just looked at me and he said, bring me a hit song. And I said, so you don't think this is a hit song? And he said, nope. And uh, he sat back in his chair and he said, Jason, our entire company needs a song that we could hang our hat on. And I, I said, okay. And I, le- I, left, I left the Sony building that day just, wow, like they are not playing around. Right. You know, so, uh, yeah. Is that, is that bef- um, this is after you had had the song with Aaron Binward. Is that right? Yes. So you, yes. you've had a song, a hit song recorded yes. already. I, I, I don't think it was, Oh yeah. It, 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 it had been a hit, uh, but I had never met with a label before. 
Like okay. I had never walked in and pitched my stuff. Right. And, and also too, I think I was figuring out, this is I, probably an important note that I've never made before, but I was figuring out that my style of writing at the time, you know what? He did make a comment um, that I've kind of always forgot about. And I just remembered he did have a reaction. He had one comment that he reacted. He said, uh, when he was done listening to the song the first time, he said, it's kind of adult contemporary. And I didn't fully understand what he meant, uh, but I kind of got that he was saying, this might not be hip enough for me. Right. And and I realized, I was like, okay, I got this song landed on Christian record. Uh, I did get this song landed with Warner, got these songs landed with Warner, but... I don't know. Like I had this hit and it was in the Christian market that seems older. And he seems like he's looking for something more hip and he's kind of like reacting to my stuff. Like it's really not that hip. Okay. Uh, so that, 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 that was, uh, definitely very eye opening for me. That was probably one of the things that made me really start searching to try to find other songwriters and producers. Okay. Yeah, because you're you're thinking thinking he's probably looking for more pop, real young sounding type stuff, right? As opposed to AC, which is adult contemporary, which is more singer songwriter, right? Uh, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then I spent the next year writing my brains out, trying to write hipper stuff, like more young, more pop, and um, I I would bulldoze my way into labels to play those songs. And I was just getting zero reaction. Like it was clearly not my thing as a writer. Uh, so I started looking for writers where it, that was their thing. Yeah. So what happened with the relationship with, um, with Warner when you, where you got your first couple of cuts, did that re- relationship continue on? Like while you were doing this other stuff or did that kind of just go away? No, it was just one record. Um, yeah. and some of the, uh, payments that you know for the production end of things they were not uh they were not honoring the production deals we, we had signed okay and it took it took a lot of work and a lot of begging to get the payments that we were promised on the uh production deals back then mm-hmm. so when you're co- co-producing that one album for your friend uh is that that's what you're talking about yeah, yeah, the, the girl that got signed to Warner. Yeah, okay. Um, we, we were owed a certain amount of money, and it took me really, really, really pushing on the phone for a long time to get that money. And so there was a part of me where it's like, I don't even want to work with these people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. So can you can you talk about that a little bit? Like, what are the, some of the the roadblocks that you, that you run into in those situations for the audience to know, like if somebody wants to become a producer and a label says, Hey, we want you to produce this for somebody, but you're dealing with this. You're not getting paid. Like, how do you, how do you approach those situations in, in a, in the right way? Um, well back then I did not have an entertainment lawyer. Um, and I never had used one. Um, and I was trying to do a lot of those kind of more, high-end businessy things on my own Mm -hmm. and um for whatever reason in the very beginning of my career those things didn't work out very well for me (laughs) uh i was me begging a lot and pleading a lot 
um, for people to honor what they said they would do. Um, and then uh, I had one situation on a record where there was a dispute over a song and how much of, you know, the artist actually wrote of the song. The artist was claiming that they wrote more of a percentage of the song than we had agreed upon. And so there was a dispute over the song. And I, I mean, I spent six months trying to handle it myself. And I was kind of, man, it was like, I was like blowing up bridges trying to handle it. And I just didn't know. I, I just wasn't equipped to handle it back then and in a professional manner and have the right approach, uh, still loving people, but you know, holding them accountable to what they said they would do yeah. in love. Um, I just didn't know how to do that back then. So uh, finally, after six months, I got to the end of myself and I called up this friend of mine who was an entertainment lawyer and he literally got the thing resolved for me in 24 hours. Wow. It was the easiest thing. He made one phone call and it was resolved. And okay. so I, I learned a lesson back then. I was like, wow, okay. In certain situations, not all, but in certain situations, you do have to have somebody, you know, that knows how to do contracts and paperwork and those kinds of things. Yeah. So let me ask you that. Um, when is the right time to hire an entertainment lawyer? If you're in the, if you're working in, in anything in the music business that would need one, when is the time to bring one in? And how much is, and how much does it roughly cost to, to, to retain their services for that kind of thing? If you can. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, my philosophy, I'm not saying I have this down perfectly, but from my experience over the years, my the way I approach it is if another human being or a company is trying to take some sort of ownership or percentage of anything, there probably should be an entertainment lawyer involved. Uh, like if, for example, like I'm, I'm making this up, but if, if I wanted to start a podcast, right, which, which I, I don't, but <laughs> if, if I, if I wanted to start a podcast and maybe you and I were friends or I knew you, maybe I could go to you and say, look, I have no idea what I'm doing. Could I like pay you a consulting fee and you help me start my podcast and, sure. and I'll get, you know, you tell me how much a month you want and I'll or whatever. Uh, I wouldn't hire, I wouldn't hire an entertainment lawyer for that because to me, if I throw you, I'm making this up, but if I give you some sort of money and I'm expecting that you're going to be a good person and, and help me. Um, and if you don't, whatever, you know, I'll move on. But if I was going to start my own podcast and I came to you and I said, can I, can I, can you please help me? And you said, I, I will help you, but I want, 25% of the proceeds from your podcast, I would probably want a lawyer to drop an agreement for that because there's an ownership there. Um, so that's the way I've always operated. Entertainment lawyers, it, at least in my world, um, I would say for record deals, uh, usually entertainment lawyers that I work with have charged somewhere in the neighborhood of about five, maybe $6,000 to negotiate, oversee a uh, record contract. I just had a record contract, uh, done, uh, with this new artist, uh, very excited about named Luke Bauer. And the record company actually gave us, uh, gave me a deal that I had already negotiated previously for another artist. So they like, took the artist's name off of 
the contract and just put this new artist name on. So it was, it was a, already a deal I'd negotiated for four months, still had a lawyer look at it just to see if there was anything he could find that was important. Uh, but the lawyer only charged 2,500 because he clearly saw that this was heavily negotiated already. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I I've experienced anywhere from, you know, $1,500 to maybe $6,000 for, for, in times I've called up an entertainment lawyer myself. Okay. Um, yeah, that's really great to know and for people listening, you know, sometimes you got to go, you got to, you got to put money up to make your dream happen. Right. And, but in order to get it done correctly so that you don't get burned on the back end yeah. and end up losing more money later on, sometimes mm-hmm. that's just a thing you got to do. Um, yeah. And, and if I could just say one other thing too, you know, just doing this for so many years, one thing I've seen is, you know, I've learned this over the years. Like, if you think about it, if you're a lawyer, your job is to think of a worst case scenario and to voice that worst case scenario to your client. Because if you can think of a worst case scenario and you don't say it to your client, you're risking down the road an artist or a client or a producer or whatever turning around saying, why didn't you tell me that could happen? You know? And so, you know, lawyers responsibly have to be cautious for their own reputation too, and kind of set a scene when they review a document of a worst case scenario, Mm -hmm. which always then freaks out who's ever receiving that worst case scenario news. And I've, I've just seen it over and over again over the years that, you know, it's not lawyers, but when a lawyer gets involved, two parties can get tense towards each other and can get nervous towards each other and start distrusting each other mm-hmm. because the entertainment lawyer is doing their job by saying like, this could happen to you. You know, th- this could be bad. Uh, and it's your job to really, and my encouragement would always be in situations like that to really try to stay calm and realize that almost anything you're dealing with in a sense, as an analogy, it's almost like negotiating to buy a home. Like if somebody's listing a home for $500,000 and, uh, and somebody comes, if you're listing a home for $500,000 and somebody comes in at $400,000, you might feel insulted, but you also have to realize that they're just negotiating, you know, and don't, don't take it personally. Don't look at the other side weird or sideways. Just realize that it's always a negotiation. It's part of life. Uh, the relationship always comes above everything else. Uh, so I don't know. I just felt like, yeah, absolutely. And it's, you have to be so careful because unfortunately it's easy to, it's easy to lose friendships in this business. Yes. You know, people, some people that you've known for many, many years and have been, you know, best friends have lost, have lost relationships with each other and no longer speak to each other. And that's such a, an unfortunate thing, you know, but I think we've probably all dealt with that to some degree. Yes. You know, but so for people that are trying to get into this or have not experienced that yet, hopefully this, these types of things you're talking about will help avoid those situations. Yeah. 
you know, uh, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. Sure. Um, so I don't know how big of a jump this is going to be. I, I know just from the beginning of this conversation that we could easily talk for four or five hours and I could just come up with question after question after question and uh, you don't have that much time. <laughs> so um, what is kind of walk us through, okay, from uh, reaching out to these A&R people at these different labels and starting to send some songs out to all of a sudden now you, at some point you started opening your own companies up. You've become your own record label. Uh, you've, you own your own management companies. You've done, you know, all these different things that you do. Um, where, where is, does that jump take place from going from, I don't know what's going on. I don't know who Sony music even exists and I can call them and get in, get my foot in the door to now I own my own companies and people are coming to me. Yeah, I think I think number one, I've always been very entrepreneurial. I think me being a songwriter is just uh, an extension of I've I was always extremely creative. Um, like when I was a kid in my bedroom, I used to make up games. I mean, I was always the type of kid that I could keep myself entertained for hours in my bedroom by myself. I, I didn't even need a toy. Like I could make mm-hmm. up games and yeah. And uh, I was always very creative. And to me, entrepreneurship is just, it's almost like songwriting. It's an extension of creativity uh, where to me, getting a job with a company feels to me like I'm singing a cover song. Um, And I never liked to do cover songs when I started playing guitar. Yeah. When I was in a band, I always wanted to write my own songs. So I've always been like, Literally, the second I picked up a guitar, I was like, the only reason I want to learn a song that I like is to learn the chords so I could then write my own songs. And I only ever learned to play two songs on the guitar. And then I just started writing all my own songs and I never, ever learned another song on the guitar. Okay. Uh, so I've just always been like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to do, I want to do it myself. I want to figure this out myself. So entrepreneur to me is like uh, being an entrepreneur to me is just, uh, it's a, it feels very creative to me. Um, I mean, obviously a lot of days it doesn't, it feels like, you know, I'm getting my butt kicked emotionally, Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's just a, for me, it's just always been the way I'm wired. It's just a creative thing for me. So um, did you ever, I'm backing up just a little bit, but with, the A and R guy at Sony, he Marvin. Said, yeah, he said, "Do you, you got to bring me a hit song?" He's like, "How do I get a job here? Bring me a hit song." Did you ever bring him a hit song? No, no. <laughs> but what was amazing was you asked earlier. You know, did that relationship continue? This was mind blowing to me, like so mind blowing, because so he was literally the head of A and R for a big, big label in Sony. And uh, he was one of the top A and R's at Sony um, in in New York, and um, uh, very successful. And uh, I'll never forget; it was probably four years later, and we had always kept in touch. Four years later, he calls me up one day, and I was starting to do well in music. And uh, he calls me up one day and invites me over his house. Oh, wow. And I had I had heard that he had recently got in fired at sony like they they like cleaned house new new president all new all new staff 
So he was uh, at home. I don't know if I reached out to him and told him I was sorry to hear it or whatever, but somehow he invites me over his house in New Jersey. And I'd never been over his house. I go over his house and the guy is living, this is literal, he's living in a mega mansion. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it was like, it was not a mansion. It was like one of the biggest houses I've ever seen in my life. And I remember pulling up saying, wow, this guy did well at Sony. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. wow, 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 wow. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, he had like all, he had like, you know, several Mercedes in the driveway. And I mean, the, the house was massive. And we go into his backyard. We, we're sitting at his pool and his wife is barbecuing. And I'll never forget it. Four years into the business, the first meeting I ever had in the Sony building in New York City, head of A&R, he looks at me and he says, I would like to come work for you. W- wow. Would you would you be open to hiring me? And I'm I'm like looking at this guy's mansion. I'm like, I, I could barely afford to pay your cable bill. Like, you know, <laughs> yes. and uh, you know, I, I could probably I can't I probably can't even afford your sneaker collection. Yeah. Uh and I'll just but it was such a cool moment for me. It's like, wow, man, like this is crazy. Like the first meeting I ever had, I at least had a moment in life where he asked me to hire him. Yeah. And, and we really like we we really talked about it. we spent a few months going back and forth talking about it. I never did it, but uh yeah, so anyway. That, so okay, cool l- let me let me ask you this. Yeah, that's amazing. Um you you said you're having some success obviously at this point in your career. What what were you doing at that point in your in your career by the time he asked you if he could come work for you? Well, I was I was getting uh several artist record deals. Um and as a manager, I was becoming known for having label sign artists. Okay, so and, and then yeah, let me yeah I want to I want to d- dive into that for a second if we can. Mm-hmm. Um, as an entrepreneur, like you went from I didn't know I could be in music to looking up calling information to find out you can you can actually call sony records and go right and get in the building um to now now you're managing artists and getting them signed to labels how did you go about starting your own management company and getting artists to come to you so that you could get them signed to a label uh, i started doing that pretty quickly um so the very first meeting i ever had with marvin i was pitching my song and I kind of left this part out of story. This was part of the four minute okay. meeting. Yep. Uh, he didn't love my song, but he probably was doing this with every single person that walked in his office. He held up a headshot, a black and white headshot. And he said, Hey, this is a girl we just signed. And he held it up just like this, a headshot. And he goes, this is a girl we just signed. And it was a headshot of a girl who I'd never heard of before, but eventually came out a girl named Mandy Moore. Okay. And he goes, and, and we're, we're looking for stuff. That's kind of like a little, like kind of like Britney Spears, you know, pop. Yeah. He's like, if you ever write anything or if you ever have anything that would fit a girl like this, let me know. And as dumb as it sounds, it kind of sparked something for me of like, wait, I could, I could write this song but I could also go try to find the girl and, or I could try to find the guy or the band or whoever it is. Yeah. So right at that moment, I started calling every music friend I had 
Um, some of them were now teaching guitar lessons. Some of them were, you know, yeah. So some of them were music teachers now. And so I was calling up all my friends saying, do you know any guys or girls who are talented? And, uh, so one of the people I called, that was a guitar teacher, a friend of mine. He's like, actually, I know this girl that sings, uh, karaoke nights, uh, open, sorry, open mic nights Mm -hmm. at a coffee shop. Like I think she's pretty good. So we go to this coffee shop. I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, We go to this coffee shop. I hear her sing one song. I thought she had a very angelic voice. Uh, She was like 16 or something like that. And uh, after she sang, we sat down at coffee and I was like, look, I want to, I want to try to get you into record label meetings. And she, she like, didn't even seem to care. She's like, okay, whatever. And, uh, and I was like, but your songs are not good enough. Like, cause I knew that the songs I was writing were better than hers. So, uh, I basically had her record one of my songs, which she hated the song. Uh, I had to beg her to record it. Uh, <laughs> I brought it into Marvin. It was my second meeting I ever had with Marvin. I brought it into Marvin and, um, he, said to me, he's like, I really don't like this song. He's like, who did she write this song? He's like, I don't think the song is good at all. And I said, actually, I wrote the song. And he goes, okay. He's like, the song stinks. So I'm like, okay. And he goes, uh, but I, I want to sign her. Wow. And I was like, you do? And he goes, yes. He's like, what's your role with her? And I said, I, I don't know. I mean, what's what should it be? And, and he goes, well, are you her manager? And I, I said, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I didn't even know what a manager did. Yeah. And he goes, and I said, I don't know. Like, should I be her manager? And he goes, do you want to be her manager? I said, if you think I should be her manager, I'll be her manager. And he goes, sure. I th- and he goes, I think you should be her manager. I said, okay. And uh, so that was the first moment where I was like, wow, like this is exciting. Like you could just find somebody off the street and like get him into like a building and like, you could make their dream come true. Like this is crazy. Yeah. And so I got very excited about that. So I started, uh, with, with, you know, relationships I had, I just started asking everybody. And then I started actually trying to like run ads, looking for singers, uh, in New York city, I would put out ads in newspapers and magazines. And I, I actually paid for myself to have a one 800 number for ads. And, uh, I would literally have like, friends of mine or friends of my younger sister, you know, like listening to these things and helping me weed through. And, and I would set up meetings. I eventually got an office in New York city and I would have singers come in and I would meet singers and just started trying to, so it was kind of an early thing that I was trying to figure out how do you get singers to come your way? So I'm, this is so, so interesting. I've never had a guest on who, did the that put the ads in the back of the magazines and newspapers to, you know saying hey call call me or send me your your stuff and let me check it out um did that work uh no but it actually sparked something for me that helped me on my journey so i i met the first year i met over 350 singers like the first year i started doing that i met 350 singers that first year uh you know 23 years ago and, um, what I learned 
which was really a wake-up, eye-opening thing for me, was I couldn't find one singer in those 350 that had better songs than I was writing. And they all had, most of them had demos of some kind. Uh, and they were all pretty bad. It was like average to bad. And so every, every singer I would meet, I knew I couldn't shop them to labels because I knew I had to walk in with a great song. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my songs were, I was struggling to get placed places and, and they're coming in with weaker songs. So I would tell everybody like, you, you need to have better songs than this. And that led me to that wake up, that, that, that realization led me to start begging, begging, begging labels, A&Rs, if I could meet uh, songwriters and producers. So I started begging people like the Marvin Peerts and all, all these A&Rs I was meeting. And I was meeting quite a few because I was just constantly cold calling and begging for meetings. Uh, so I, I, I probably at that point had 10 or 12 A&Rs in New York City that I knew decently. And I just started begging every one of them, like desperate begging, like I need your help. Like, and I actually would tell A&Rs, it's probably not kosher to say, but I would tell A&Rs, and keep in mind this is New York, not Nashville, uh, but I would tell A&Rs, like, I will, I will pay you to if you could help me. Like, I just need to know who these right songwriters and producers are because I'm meeting these singers and I want to make stuff happen, but I can't get them good enough songs, and they, yeah. and they can't get good enough songs. So that went on this journey of trying to find better songwriters and producers, and that led me to actually uh, start managing producers. And um, that that's actually where I started having my biggest successes uh, years ago in New York and L.A. was I just th- there was four different producers I was managing, and they were all on fire hot. And this is back when you know. Uh, most of the producers I was managing back then were getting about $40,000 a song up front and they were getting that all day, every day. Uh, they were working on songs all day long for labels. And um, uh, most of the time we were getting song deals uh, where labels would offer, uh, you know, 10 songs up front and the songs weren't even there. You know, they'd offer a hot producer, you know, a deal to do 10 songs at 40,000 a song, and they would give you know a couple hundred thousand dollars up front um, to do those deals. Sometimes we would shop artists to labels, and I would get a label offer, and there would be a producer attached to the artist. And to sweeten the deal, the label would offer in addition a producer deal of four hundred thousand dollars to the producer. So uh, th- that's really where I started having a lot of success, uh, especially when I lived in Los Angeles. That's amazing. Um, so my next question regarding that is once you started managing artists and producers, you're getting all these people to, to help facilitate their careers. And like you mentioned earlier, you just started doing it. Like you have no background in doing this, right? There's no degree in being a manager. Um, and but you're taking all these people to these major labels and getting getting them deals. Like, how do you figure out, as someone who had never really done this before, how to put deals together, how to know what to charge your clients for your services, 
Mm. Um, and, and how to get them these deals. Like you're having to figure this stuff out. Are you, are you finding other people that are doing the same thing that you're doing and getting, getting information from them, getting feedback on, okay, this is how you need to do this. Or are you just making it up as you go? And it just happened to work out. Like, how do you do that? Uh, well, as far as how much to charge, I was just, I would ask people like a and R's songwriters, producers, like in the beginning with Marvin, He's like, do you want to manage this girl? I was like, I don't even know what a manager is. Right. Yeah. And uh, so I would ask people like, how much do managers get? And they'd be like 15 to 20%. I was like, great. 15 to 20%. So, uh, I mean, that, that was kind of that. And then, um, uh, how to get deals. I, I didn't, I just knew like, it just felt cause I used to work for a home improvement company before I got into music and I was in sales and I knew that it was, I knew sales was a numbers game. And so when I was in the sales world before music, I knew that, you know, if I just keep in a sense, knocking on doors and talking to people, eventually somebody buys your product. Mm-hmm. And so I realized with labels, I needed to know. And back then there was tons of A&Rs. Um, it felt like they were like falling out of trees, like, <laughs> I mean, I had so many A&R relationships back then. It was crazy. I, I, I mean, when I moved to LA, I probably had literally, I literally had probably 30 to 40 A&R relationships and they were like good relations. Like I really knew them and we were, we, I would do dinners with them and, you know, and I would hang out with them. And, and so, uh, but I viewed it not in a manipulative or bad way. I just viewed it as like, I'm meeting this artist and I believe in them and I really want to help them. I have to know as many potential in a sense, like buyers, uh, as possible. And so what I would do is I would meet an artist. I would try to get them good songs. And then once I felt like I had good songs and, and, and a musical direction forming, what I would do is I would just, take all the labels and I would book two weeks of meetings and I would do like one week in New York and one week in LA. And I would do all the meetings back to back hoping, and this probably sounds bad, but I didn't know how else to do it or get excitement about an artist. But I was, I was hoping always that if the artist met a bunch of labels in New York over the course of a Monday through Friday. And then the next Monday through Friday, they met all the labels in LA that somehow labels would start hearing about this artist yeah, yeah, and hearing that they took a meeting with this artist too. And wondering like, will we lose this artist? Yeah. Start label war basically. Yeah. And and I (laughs) never meant to do that. I just, I just knew like, well, there's a chance I could go to 30 people and 30 people might not want this. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, to, to be safe that this person who has a massive dream in their heart to be safe that they land somewhere, I have to go to like 31 people. Um, sure. and, uh, so yeah, that's kind of what I would do and how those deals would happen. Uh, so once you started doing that, who all have you gotten signed? Who are some artists that people would know that you've gotten deals for over the years? Uh, well, a lot of those artists, especially in the beginning years, uh, sadly, mo- most of them failed. Because uh, I was, uh, I didn't know what I was doing. 
as far as a manager goes. And I, 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 I don't know if the word is regret. Uh, I definitely say this with some sorrow. Um, mm. but you know, I, for many years was not good at what I did. And, uh, I also didn't know the Lord back then and uh, I didn't have a lot of wisdom. So, you know, there's probably some artists out there that maybe some people would know, but none of them were that, that successful. Okay. I, I would say that the successes when it came to artists have really come more in recent years. Okay. Um, like, you know, there's a guy named, uh, Jordy Searcy who's on tour with Ben Rector right now. There's a girl, Ann Wilson, who, uh, yeah. you know, just got off tour with Zach Williams. I love Ann Wilson. Uh, there's Austin French. Uh, you know, who's had three top tens as a Christian artist. Right. Uh, we have a girl named Kings who's a pop artist that we developed who is, is starting to become pretty well known in Australia. There's a girl named Marlowe that we developed who's an alternative artist that's becoming pretty well known in Australia. Uh, and, and, and a few others, but, uh, the, the artist thing really clicked I got a lot better at it. I would say, I say this almost sadly, but I, I got really a lot better. I, you know, thank God I was always like able to get artist deals, but I think being able to deliver really, really uh, higher quality to labels probably and coach artists better. Uh, which was a big, big, big key for me was learning how to coach up artists better, have a better team around me, um, learn how to dive into the micro details of an artist better, how to figure out their sound better. That that has really come more in the last five to seven years for me, where I've I could say that I've gotten good at that. Okay, can you can you tell us a little bit like what that looks like? How do you get micro into an artist? sound to figure out what it is that they need to sound like or to help collaborate with them to make them the artist that everybody knows now. Yeah. I think, uh, when it's an artist that doesn't have tons of experience, if there's a little bit of a greenness there, uh, you gotta really, at least for me, I have to really, really be listening for and watching for clues um, I think there's a treasure map inside every artist, uh, and it's about finding the the map and going on the journey and peeling off the layers of that person and the artist. But you know, it, it could be, you know, there could be clues maybe in covers they're doing, maybe not. Uh, covers sometimes could be covers artists are doing sometimes could throw you off the trail. Um. Sometimes it's on the trail. You got to, you know, I've had to learn, you know, what being in the right trail and the treasure map feels like and looks like versus being off of it. Um, and so, and I think for me, when I know that I'm on it, it's, is this sound unique? Is where we're going something that doesn't sound like another artist? Mm-hmm. Because if it sounds like another artist, I don't believe you've found the treasure within that person. And uh, so does it sound unique? Does it feel unique? Is the vibe unique? Is there any other girl that would feel like this? Is there any other guy that would feel like this? 
Um, and then just the micro details of, and, and you know what else I would say is learning to not be safe. Um, you know, what does that look like? What does that mean? What does that feel like? How, how, you know, what are the song choices? What are the product, the, the sonic vibes, uh, and just trying to do something that feels familiar, but a little bit different. Um, yeah. so the, and that's just like having endless conversations with the artists, getting to know them really well, um, doing a lot of contemplative thinking on my own, um, asking God, you know, asking others how they hear this artist, what do they see? Mm-hmm. Um, when you do find something or you think you find something, bouncing it off the artist and seeing, you know, how excited do they seem about that idea or not excited, you know, there's just so many little details to figure out where, where that treasure lies yeah. for each person. That's cool. Um, I, I just, I love, I love how you didn't, how you went from not knowing anything about managing an artist. Um, you know, and then Marvin says, Hey, you need, you should manage this one, this one girl. And then you've built this huge, this, you know, huge career out of that to so many different aspects of it. And that for the people listening right now that, you know, I've got so many guests that come on and, you know, half of them went to college or went to, you know, went to school for the things that they do in the music business. And then half of them, they just did it. You know, they didn't Mm -hmm. have the education, but they proved that you don't necessarily have to have the education to pull it off. You just got to be able to get in, dig in the trenches and figure it out, you know, and learn on the go and you can still pull it off and you can still be successful doing that. And so I love that you're able to, that you've had as much success as that you've had doing it that way. And so that people listening, like, I don't, I didn't get to go to school for this thing, or I don't want to go to school for this thing, but I want to do this thing. Mm-hmm. And it gives them hope, <laughs> you know, yeah. that, it, that it, it is possible to do this kind of stuff. And you've been very successful doing that. Let, let me ask you this, um, because I know on your bio, you've worked with, um, you worked with Boys to Men, uh, Alabama. I mean, there's just tons. I, I don't have, have the list in front of me, but I remember that there, you had this huge list of artists that you've worked with. So you didn't work with those guys. You didn't get them signed. Obviously, they were already doing right. their thing but yeah. um in what capacity have you worked with those artists or do you work with those artists um, so t- tell us some of those artists that you have worked with in on that a a plus plus level of of artists yeah so uh with dolly uh i was the head of a&r for her management company um with i worked with gina shock for years uh was you know, kind of co-managing Gina shock. She was, uh, is the drummer of the go-go's. Okay. Uh, she also wrote Selena Gomez's first, uh, big hit called falling and, uh, wrote a hit for Miley Cyrus called breakout. Um, uh, boys to men was more, uh, Sean from boys to men. Um, me and Sean, uh, were, uh, literally finding artists and developing them together and trying to get them deals. Um, I did the same thing for a short period of time with Dean Zams from Lone Star. Uh, 
and uh, Alabama was the same thing. I was working with uh, Teddy Gentry, the bass player of Alabama, yeah. and we were trying to develop artists and get them record deals uh, together. Uh, so I'd say that those were more, you know, production companies that that we had formed and okay. were trying to find and develop artists. Uh, um, and how? Well, let me ask you this: How do you? Um, how did you build the relationship with those? with those artists to begin with in order for them to say, Hey, I want to help. I want to start a production company with you or, or, you know, and help find other artists to sign. How did you get those relationships with those guys to do that? It was, it was all, I've always been like a really, uh, intense networker. Uh, so, uh, um, Teddy from Alabama, I met through Dolly Parton's manager, uh, because I was, I was managing for a period of time, Dolly Parton's, producer and i was for for a period of time i was killing it for him and uh, so dolly's manager saw i was killing it for dolly's producer and so he started talking to other people in the business like you gotta you gotta get with this guy okay Uh, so that's how i met teddy Gentry. that's that's actually dean sams i met through an artist i worked with named jamie o'neill who was a country singer Yep. yep um and then uh so, so I was doing a lot with Jamie O'Neill and, and I believe it was Jamie O'Neill that introduced me to Dean Sams from Lone Star. And then, uh, I worked for a few years in LA. I managed, uh, the DJ, uh, from the band Sugar Ray, a guy named Craig Bullock. Um, he was a producer and, uh, was also in the band Sugar Ray, but he was also a producer. Yeah. I met him through a girl, I believe her name was Allie, but she was, I can't even remember her name anymore, but she was an A&R at Geffen Records and her and I became close and she saw what I was doing with these four producers I was managing. And so Craig from Sugar Ray was a producer. So, uh, and they were a really big band at the time. Um, and so I ended up meeting him. Um, there's, there's been a lot of those kinds of, relationships did you so did you get the the job to manage dolly because you were managing her producer first well i never managed dolly uh or what i'm sorry tell me again what what's what was your position at her i was i was the head of a and r for her management company okay so how did you get did you get that gig because you were working with her producer Uh, first how did how uh, did you get that actually i started working with uh dolly's manager uh the general manager of Dolly's Parton's management company knew somebody that knew me. Okay. And they contacted me and said, we're looking for somebody to find talent and bring it in. You know, Dolly is starting a management company with her manager, Danny Nozell. And we want somebody who really knows how to find talent and develop talent and sign talent to the company. Mm-hmm. So I ended up meeting with Danny, who's Dolly's manager, and we massively back then hit it off. I mean, we became pretty close friends for a period of time. And he was the one that said, I, I really want, we want to hire you to be the A&R here. Uh, after that, Dolly's producer came to me separately. Okay. And I was like, would you be willing to manage me too? I got you. And so okay. that's, that's how that happened. Yeah. I appreciate you telling me that. I'm just trying to get a through line. So, so we all as an audience understand, you know, how the process works, yeah. you know, because 
uh, we say time and time again on this show with so many guests that this whole thing is based on relationships. Yeah. Right. The whole industry, for the most part, is based on relationships. Networking, networking and relationships. Yeah. Yep. Um, let me ask you this as far as managing producers. Uh-huh. I don't know if I've ever talked to someone who, uh, as a guest on the show, that has managed producers before. Um, can you talk a little bit what that's like? How, how is that different to manage a producer as opposed to managing an artist or a songwriter? Uh, it was mainly through the artist. I'm sorry. It was mainly through the A and R relationships that I had. So I was always in the know because producers are primarily head down in their studio working on music, and you know they they know artists and they know what's going on because labels are putting new artists with them, and you know they're pretty in the know, but. Um, it, it could sometimes be very beneficial for a producer to develop a relationship with an artist that's earlier in their career, mm-hmm. because if it's, if it's, if a, an artist just got signed to a label or is close to getting signed to a label and you're a producer and you hit it off with an artist, there's a really good chance you're going to land on their album at some point. Yeah. Um, or maybe even do half of their album or, you know, whatever. So uh, I, because I knew so many A&Rs at the time back then, I would, you know, it was like 30 to 40 A&Rs I had relationships with. It was definitely 30 plus. Um, and so I knew every, not every, I knew almost every single artist that was either about to get signed or just got signed. And I would be trying to get my produce the, the artists in the room with my producers early so that they could build that relationship with the artist. And it, it was paying off. I mean, they were landing a lot more songs on records. And also the other way was, you know, when a, the producer developed an artist, I would manage the artist and the producers knew that there was a better chance that they were going to get a record deal or, potentially get a bigger deal just because there was, you know, a lot of access to labels. So, yeah. And and, and I'll say this too. There are some producers that are very, very, very active and they're really like aggressive in a good way. And they're always in A&R's faces, but I would say that those are fewer. Um, Most producers kind of have their head down in the studio Mm -hmm. and they're just not, actively working stuff all the time and working yeah. those relationships. So um, for the producers I was working with, they were more head down in the studio. Yeah. So I was kind of keeping a lot of those relationships, you know, going, going, what would you tell someone um, some advice if for someone who is a producer that is struggling to get work? Like I, I want to be producing an artist, not necessarily a specific artist, but I want to be working with more artists, either whether it's doing demos or, you know, working on a, a single song or an album, and they're just not having success um, getting attention, getting their name out there to people. Like, who, how would you suggest they go about doing that? Is it finding a manager to work with them? Can can they do it on their own? They Is there something specific they need to do themselves to make that happen better? What would you tell people in that position? Uh, I think it's about number one, 
really, really, really working on your craft and becoming great, uh, which is not easy to do. But I think becoming great at your craft is one thing. And then I think, um, you know, if you are charging money, that the value is maybe if you're struggling to get a lot of work, I would keep the dollars you're charging below the value that you're giving. Mm-hmm. Um, like there was one producer I met a few years ago who's now become a pretty hot producer. Um, and when I met him, he was charging artists like, I don't know, maybe $600 a song. And his value to me was obviously probably more like $1,500 a song. Um, worst case scenario, $1,000 a song. Yeah. So I said to him, I said, you know, if I was able to get artists to you that I think are decent or good or, you know, would you be, would you be okay doing songs for a thousand dollars a song or eight or maybe $750 a song or $800 a song? Um, Cause I think you're undervalued. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he, like, he couldn't even believe it. He was like, you could get me $800 a song and, and, you know, coming from the world I'm coming from where producers are getting, you know, four to $5,000 a song, he was in an unbelievable find. And so I, I worked with him a lot trying to develop artists and, you know, he would charge 800 to to $1,000 a song. He was still, in my opinion, below his value. Um, and But he didn't have the hits to prove it yet. So I think that was fair to be a little undervalued without the hits. Yeah. And um, artists were so happy because they were getting like fairly affordable recordings, not super cheap, but affordable. Right. And they were getting like, in my opinion, they were getting, you know, twenty five to $3,500 recordings out of it. Um, and I mean, some artists actually got, you know, songs that were recordings back that probably sounded like they were four or $5,000 uh, out of that. And then eventually you know, when he started landing on records, it was like, you know, bump him up to 1500 and artists are still getting an unbelievable value. His, his productions now sound like they're three to $5,000. Uh, so I think, you know, I watched him get crazy busy because he was like on the cheaper side of things, but he was delivering a pretty high value. So I, I do think that that's one way. And then I think just getting yourself out there, uh, I, I think there's websites out there that you can, you know, I forget what the names of the, what the names of the sites are, but I do know that there's websites out there that artists look on to yeah. try to hire producers. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, and I think if, if you're reasonable enough and you're willing to work hard, you could probably get hired off of those kinds of sites as well. Yeah. That's cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I've, um, yeah, I know about the sites you're talking about. I can't think of the name of, names of them at the moment either, but uh, I know a lot of, I know I've got some friends who actually use those services and do really well with them as mm-hmm. well. So tell us about 117. What is 117? Well, 117 was a company I started to try to sign songwriters or manage producers. Um, so when I was managing the producers, that's always what I would do it under. Now we just use that as a development company. Um, so, you know, like 
artists like that I mentioned, like Ann Wilson, Austin French, uh, Marlowe, this girl Kings, this pop girl Kings, um, this new pop artist that just got a deal, SFX, uh, pop artist from Hawaii, um, this guy Luke Bauer that we just got a record deal for in Christian music. Uh, they've all been developed first. We developed them as artists first through our company, 117. And um, so that, that's basically what the company is today. Okay. And you've got Noble Management. Yeah. So that, that's on the Christian side of things. So if we're managing an artist on in, in the Christian market, we would, you know, me, you know, technically they'd be under that company. Okay. And then um, uh, what, and then higher level, Agency is, is the booking side of things, correct? Yep. So I have a partner, Jasmine Roll, who started that company and for the most part runs it. Uh, and uh, that's a booking agency for speakers and artists, mainly speakers. And then um, I have a company called Radar Label Group, which I haven't really done much with lately, but over the years we've signed uh, some alternative artists together. So you got uh, you get your hand in a lot of different things, right? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Um, now I love Ann Wilson. She's an amazing artist. Um, I'm actually going to actually be interviewing her. There's a music festival I work with called Life Fest. Yeah. And um, she's going to be out at our festival. And so um, I'll be doing an interview with her. So I'm excited for that and to get to hear her live for the first time. How did you find Ann? And what was it about her that made you say, I want to sign and develop this artist? to become who she is now because she, when she came out, I mean, one song, you know, let me tell you about my Jesus first single out of the gate, man. Number one, huge, huge thing. And she's off and running. Yep. You know? Yeah. So, uh, so that song came out, um, April 16th of last year. Um, and then went to radio, uh, May 21st of last year. Uh, before that, I I met Anne when she was 15. So there was a pastor I know from uh, lives in Tampa, Florida, and um, he is always trying to find singers for me to check out. And we've actually, I believe it's eight artists. I think there's eight artists that he sent my way over the last maybe four years that have all gotten record deals um, that we developed and got record deals. So he's got this magic touch with me, but um, he sent me, uh, she had put out one video online. That's all she had was one video of her singing. It was her doing a song called uh, what a beautiful name by Hillsong when she was 15, which you could still find on YouTube. If you look up Ann Wilson, what a beautiful name it's still on there. It's her at 15 years old doing the cover. That's what was sent to me. Right. And I, I, you could just, you know, even though she sounds like a, like a kid, um, you could hear in her voice, there's buried this little bit of like a raspiness. Yeah. And it kind of seemed to me like if she got older and was coached well, that it could kind of almost be a little bit like an Ellie Holcomb. And yeah, so that's, sure. ki- that's kind of what, I found interesting. I thought there was an interesting rasp and tone that could, could be brought out of her. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, as we went down the road, 
Um, I kind of thought for a while it was probably going to land like an Ellie Holcomb. Um, I didn't know how to make it more commercial than Ellie Holcomb. Uh, and then we, we kind of, the treasure map, we kind of figured out to go in this kind of, uh, almost like female Zach Williams kind of direction, you know, right, like, like yeah. j- j- just a female Southern country direction. And yeah. Once we started leaning into that and asking writers and producers to think like that, uh, it, it, she became to me very, very, very believable. Like I, mm-hmm. I started really believing her, um, yeah. on these songs and, uh, yeah. So that's, that's kind of how, how, it, how it developed. And then we, we were just very, we were very tough on the songs. She was willing to, um, keep digging with writers. And, and so for her first record, which came out about a month ago, um, uh, there was 130 songs written, uh, with, with all pretty well-known writers. Uh, and you know, it's a great 12 song record, but there was a lot of, a lot of digging to get to those songs and get to that sound. Mm -hmm. Now I know that most artists nowadays, in order for a songwriter to get a song placed onto an album for another artist, that you have to write with the artist. The majority of the time, the, the old days of you have a couple songwriters that would pitch their song and the artist would record the songwriter's song, right? Yeah. And nowadays they want the artist to be involved in the writing process. And if you can't have the artist involved with you writing, then chances are you're not going to get your song on that artist album. Yeah, I think I think a little bit of that was driven just from, um, you know, if you're a record label and you sign an artist to a publishing deal as well, um, you do want the artist to be in the room because you're going to get more of a piece of the song as a record label. Yep. Um, and then obviously as an artist, if you're in the room, you're going to make more income if the song is a hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think too, like if you're really trying to figure out a sound that feels unique. Uh, it's really hard to do that if the writers, if the artist is not in the room and the artist doesn't know what the sound is. Sure. That makes sense. It was, I think like with Anne, one of the things that she got really good at and I really encouraged her a lot in the beginning and she really ran with it was just, um, okay, like we know the sound you need to go into these songwriting sessions and direct these writers to your sound like you know you can't let them dictate what they want to do that day like your your job i mean part of your job as an artist especially if you're a signed artist is you know you you have these songwriters they're they're away from their family for the day they're they left their kids at home with their wife or husband and um they've left their family and they're not getting paid anything extra normally if you're signed to write that song with you that day. So it's kind of part of your job is to try to help these people land on your album and you can't help them unless you're directing them to what you like, what you don't like, you know, does that really feel like you as an artist or no? As she went on the process of her first record, I think her confidence grew to, you know, Hey, I've got a, a, a lyric idea or I have a melody idea. So she definitely, as the record went on, started, um, contributing more 
um, as her confidence grew as an artist. Someone who wants to, uh, I, I know the answers to these things, but for the audience who are trying to get their foot in the door for the first time, uh, or have been at it for a while and they want to be a songwriter for another artist, they want to get their, their songs just like you and me, right? We're songwriters. And so, and we're always trying to get our music placed on something. Um, what is the process that you have seen or go through to give people those opportunities? As a songwriter to land on artists. On someone else's, on an artist album, yeah. Um, I think, I think number one, uh, this is a lot to ask of any human being, but I think, you know, if you're a really good writer and you really believe in yourself and you've gotten confirmation from other people that you're really, really good, I think, you know, living in a music city is probably a pretty beneficial thing because mm-hmm. it's hard to get into the room with anybody if you're not there. I mean, I guess today right. you could do a, a Zoom in, but most people are not going to want to Zoom in somebody that is an unproven writer. Sure. Um, yeah. So I think you know networking, being in that town is really beneficial. Um, and I think just really working extremely hard on your craft. Uh, this artist, Luke Bauer, that we, thanks to God, work with and manage and developed, uh, who just signed with Fairtrade uh, probably a month and a half ago, he he's writing three songs a day. Um, when, when we don't have songwriting sessions set up for him, he's sending me at least one song a day. I mean, I would say almost every single day at 11 o'clock at night or midnight, or 10 in the night, I'm getting a text from Luke and I almost always know what it is. It's, it's almost never like, Hey, what's up? What are you doing tonight? You know, are you, are you watching some TV? It's like, he's literally texting me songs like memos. Uh, and, uh, there's a song he literally wrote over the last three days. And it started out as like he wanted to put up something for Mother's Day, you know, a little song he wrote for for his mom, and and he sent it to me, a first verse and chorus. I was like, "This is the single best song you've written," mm. uh, and I was like, "You need to finish this immediately." And he, you know, for the most part, has it finished, and it's a hundred percent guaranteed going to be on his record. How is that possible? I mean, he writes three songs every single day. Yeah. Uh, he's a songwriting machine. So I think, you know, really working very, very hard on your craft and doing it seven days a week uh, could also position you to get people's attention as a writer. Yeah. So that that leads me into the next thing would be for you with your companies, what do you look for in in signing someone as a as an artist? Or do you sign songwriters or is it just pretty much artists that you're looking for? There is one songwriter in the, in the last three years, there's been one songwriter that we developed and got helped get a publishing deal for. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm sorry. Sorry. There's in the last three years, there's two songwriters that we developed and got publishing deals for. So uh, I guess we do do it. I was about to say we don't do it, but we've done it <laughs> twice. And you do speakers uh, as well. 
yeah, um, with, one, yeah. with one of your companies, you do some speakers and different things like that. But like, yeah. so what is it that you're looking for when you're, when you're assigning different people? Uh, I, I'm always listening for tone of voice. Uh, and you know, do they seem like they really want this? Do they seem like when you eventually meet them and sit in a room with them, can I, do I have a vision? Like, can I see something happening with them? Like, do I feel like I would know what to do with them? Mm-hmm. Uh, because one thing I've learned with artists is you can't really get to a big destination without shared vision, you know? And it's like when Ann and I figured out that it was this country Southern direction, uh, there's no other female that was doing that. And so it was a little, at first it was gently scary. Like, are we making a mistake? Are we going in the wrong direction? Is this too risky? But because her and I were so sure of it, it felt like God was in that, you know? And so if I had thought country Southern and she was like, no, I want to sound like Lauren Daigle, I would have, uh, you know, I would have questioned, is that really coming from God? If me and the artist are not aligning on a vision, you mm-hmm. know, so I think shared vision is really important. Um, so let me ask you this. So you have Awaken Records, right? Uh-huh. Um, are you, so are you signing artists to your own label? Cause you just, you talked about signing, uh, getting someone signed to fair trade. Um, so you're getting artists signed to other labels. Who do you, what type of artist do you sign to your own label and why would you, uh, send an artist to someone else as opposed to your own label? Yeah. So, uh, Awaken Records was formed out of necessity because we could not get, uh, Austin French, who is amazing. We could not get Austin French a record deal. Um, we tried. Um, I tried everything I could. Nobody would sign them. So it was just me and two investors and him. And we were like, okay, like we're gonna we're gonna do this thing with with or without labels. Uh, and thanks to the two investors, we do have the financial means that we could spend what a Christian label would spend. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if we'd be as successful, but we could spend it and uh, go go after it at least, um, if that's what God is calling us to. Um, so Awaken was formed because we had an artist, we couldn't get him a deal, and we believed we all believed so strongly that there was something there that we we could not stop. It was just it was like just because people are saying no, what is God calling us to? And God is calling mm-hmm. us to not stop this. Yeah. So now we've got that company in place. And um, uh, so, you know, if I have an artist that I massively believe in and I get to know over, you know, six months to a year and I know their work ethic is there and they're very serious and they're passionate and and I believe I feel like God is saying that this is it, this is the artist. My first mode is to try to, get them signed to a label because, you know, I love working with labels. It's one of my most fun things to do. I love having relationships with people at labels. I just, I actually love it. Uh, I, I get a lot of joy out of it. Um, and then if, if I believe that strongly in an artist and a label doesn't want to do a deal or doesn't see that vision or 
they decide to sign something else instead of it. Uh, if it's the right artist, I, I just, I wouldn't even know how to stop. Um, so, you know, um, we haven't signed anyone else to awaken because we haven't in a sense had to, right. Uh, because anybody that I've really been excited about in the last four years, we've been able to get a record deal offer on. Um, but if there's an artist, you know, there's an artist right now that we're developing that I am through the roof about, um, probably one of the most excited, like probably the most excited or one of the most excited times like I've ever been about an artist. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I just feel like, like I got to go the distance with this artist. So I'm praying a record label signs her. Uh, but if not, I, we have, you know, the means to, to do it and not to say that we'll do it as well. (laughs) And, uh, not to say that we would be successful with it, but, uh, you know, to me, like when God's calling you to something, you just, you have to follow it through. Sure. Well, and so just so that people know, even though you signed Austin French to your own label, because out of, like you said, out of necessity, he's, he's been very successful. Yes. Like I know who Austin French is. I've heard his songs and he's got hit songs on the radio, Yeah, you know? And so it's not just the, because, and people need to understand that people get rejected all the time. All right? the time. All the time. And I mean, Garth Brooks has been rejected more times before he got his deal yeah. with Capital than um, he could probably shake a stick at, you know? Right. And then now he's the biggest artist of all time, basically. Right. right. And, um, you know, so we all go through that, that stuff. And it's just a matter of waiting until the right moment, until the right person comes along to put, to put it out. And then, you know, you put him out and he's had success, even though everyone else didn't think he would be, he's proven everyone else wrong. So, yeah, yeah. and I love that. So I'm, I'm glad that you guys went forward with that and, and did it anyway. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Buck the system a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's awesome. Um, Man, I, we could sit and talk forever. I know you got other stuff to do. So um, just as we wrap up, can you give, you've been giving advice this, throughout this whole thing, but is there anything that you would say that we haven't talked about yet that you might give some advice on, some do's or don'ts uh, for people who want to get into the business or are already in the business trying to do some of the different things that you've done, whether it be on A&R or, or uh, songwriting or managing, any of the kind of stuff that you've been a part of? Um, what are some things that you would tell people, Hey, this is, you're not going to hear this in a classroom. You're not going to hear this on, you know, in an interview from someone else, but here's what you really have to do to make a living, to be successful in this business. What would that be? Yeah. I would say a few things, uh, from your heart, the depths of your heart, I think having a real care and love for people, is a really big asset. I think it's easy to think about what do I want? What am I trying to get out of this person? Um, but I think really feeling a love and care for people you're working with uh, goes a long way. And I think people see through that stuff and, and can feel it. Um, so I, I would say, you know, to always try, you may not have answers, but always try to think about like, what could I be bringing to this person? um, that would help them. Mm -hmm. Maybe it helps me too. Maybe it doesn't. Um, but is there anything I could bring to this person that would help them? Um, I think that's very powerful. Uh, also my dad, when I was younger, 
he told me something that I never forgot. He said, uh, he said to me, he goes, always remember in life and in business, the second you call somebody a name, the second you raise your voice, the second you use bad language, the second you lose control of your emotions, you are immediately the jerk in the room. And he goes, even if somebody's done the wrong thing to you, always be calm and keep the weight on the other person that's done something wrong to you and uh, treat people like with, with a kindness, maybe a firmness, but a kindness. And uh, I've, I, th- that's really, really been very beneficial for me over the years. Um, he, like I remember there was one guy once, a producer, that uh, kind of in a sense stole an artist from me. Um, I was managing them. I put him with the producer. The producer wanted to go to labels. I thought it was too early for the artist to go to labels, but the artist, the producer really saw that they could maybe get a deal and maybe make some money. Um, so behind my back, he kind of convinced his artist, like Jason doesn't know what he's talking about. We should go to labels. He goes to labels. He gets a deal. I think he got an additional only like $30,000 in his pocket, the producer and uh convince the artist like basically to like blow me off and not work with me and then the artist goes and literally fails uh, uh you know on on the label and it because it was too early and i'll never forget when i got the producer on the phone um after i figured out he had just like basically like in a sense almost stolen this artist from me um i just remember saying to him, i was like listen you know you don't, you don't have to operate in life like that. Like you could, uh, you know, you, you could, it's, you could have offered me 1%, <laughs> you know, and, mm-hmm. and that would have been more generous and more kind than not offering me anything. And, and yeah. not that I even needed the 1%, it's really the, the gesture and the, the relational aspect of it. I was like, you don't just like, you don't just do things behind people's back and take things like that's not the right way to be in life, you know? And I'll never forget when I was done talking to him, he, this was his response word for word. He said to me, he said, I can't actually believe that you're approaching me like this. He's like, I I would have thought you would have called me up cursing and screaming at me and threatening me. And he's like, I can't believe like, cause I was trying to give him advice for his future. And he goes, I just can't believe you're approaching me like this. He's like, I think, you know, most people would have called me up right now screaming and cursing at me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that always kind of stuck with me. And, um, and then I would also say to just, uh, you know, when you, if you're an entrepreneur, you're an artist, whoever you are, if, if, when dealing with money, um, I would, uh, always say that, you know, if you owe somebody a dollar, pay it to them, you know, God will take care of you. Uh, you know, don't try not to hold on to money. That's not yours. Um, try not to be slow, try not to be slow to pay people. Uh, you know, one of the ways that you could show people that you care about them and love them is to really honor, you know, what your agreement is and pay them quickly. Um, when you owe them money, uh, it's something that I haven't really dealt with in many years, but when I was starting out in the business, it felt like, nobody ever wanted to pay me for anything after they had agreed to. Yeah. Uh, so uh, th- th- those would be a few things. That's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that. I'm super grateful uh, for all the advice. It's been 
an amazing conversation and uh, I'm excited for everyone to hear about it. R- real quick, as we wrap it up, I want to, would you share real quick, uh, just a snippet of your story? Now, I saw a video that you had done um, a while back about your story um, and was very, it was very, very powerful. And because um, we can sit and talk about this kind of stuff all day long. But I know that you mentioned, you know, in the, you know, this podcast is you can make a living in the music industry. And it's true. We're sitting here, we're proving it right now through our conversation that you can do this because we're both doing it for, for a living, right? Um, but what does it look like when you get to the very top of the ladder in the industry? And then that's all there is to it. You know, you get there and it's kind of like, okay, now what? Can you just kind of quickly share what that story is and how it's affected your life and what you do in the business now? Yeah. Uh, well, just personally in my life, I, I, when I was younger, I received a message, uh, that, that made me believe like I was going to be a failure in life. And, uh, I, I kind of thought I was maybe stupid or I'd be a failure. I wasn't that smart. And, um, I received that message when I was younger and now I know it was, it was the enemy. Um, but I, you know, as I was growing in music, I had a desire to help people, but my desire to, um, prove myself to the world or earn people's acceptance, um, what I believed would earn people's acceptance overshadowed that. So I really believed that the way a male gains acceptance in the world is by being successful. And um, I didn't know how else to prove to people that I was successful without material objects. Um, I didn't even realize what I was doing back then. I just was mm-hmm. drawn to like very expensive things. Yeah. Uh, and you know the enemy was using that to siphon out my security and my money out of my bank account <laughs> uh, to hopefully destroy me. But you know, so I would see a really nice car when I was becoming successful, and I would want it very badly. I didn't realize back then that I wanted it because I believed somewhere deep in my soul that if I showed up at a meeting with you. And you saw that I had a nice car like that or a hard to get car that you would think that I was successful. And somewhere in there, I got confused deep in my subconscious that if you believed I was successful, that you would actually accept me and that you would potentially maybe even love me and, uh, and, and want to be around me. And, and, and I, I was very lost, very confused. And so, uh, 15 years ago, um, I was definitely doing well in life. Most people would say that I was doing well and I, uh, but I was very empty inside and I was very miserable and all the buying stuff did not pay off anything. It did not produce any real relationships. Uh, I felt very alone. I felt very empty. I felt very self-centered. And there was a lot of pain I dealt with in my childhood that I never really, you know, I I never dealt with. And um, I was like, you know, if this is what getting everything you want looks like, 
if this is everything on this earth, I don't want to be here anymore. I was under a tremendous amount of financial pressure because I kept building this like uh, sandcastle empire for myself, you know, trying to maintain this life to show people that I'm somebody, which is very sad. And um, 15 years ago, I checked myself into a hotel room to kill myself. And it's a longer story, but I, I basically got radically saved. I've for the first I'm born and raised Jewish, mom and dad Jewish, and for the first time ever, fifteen years ago, I opened up a Bible and I ended up accepting, thanks to God, accepted Jesus into my life. Yeah. And um I just have seen over fifteen years that as imperfect and um sometimes wretched and sometimes sad as a human being as I am. God has just been so faithful over these last 15 years where little by little, step by step, year by year, I do see him slowly cleaning up um, my mess of, of, a, of who I am and yeah. making me slowly over the years more like him. And uh, it's, it's a very, I'm very thankful for it. Uh, I do wish for a lot of people I encountered in my life in the past that I was uh, more cleaned up for them. <laughs> uh, that That's probably the only thing I don't love about the process of me um, growing in the Lord is that uh, I didn't find him sooner in life. You know, I, I, I don't wish to change my story because it's a story that God gave me. But uh, you know, part of me wonders. You know, if I was if I was raised by great Christian parents and knew Jesus from a little kid, would I have made less mistakes in life? Would I have hurt less people in life when I was growing up? Uh, yeah. What would I have been? Uh, just a better, uh, you know, just just have a little bit more godly characteristics as I was growing up in life. Um, sure. And so, uh, but. God has literally 180 degrees changed my life. Uh, I am still massively a work in progress. But if you if you look back five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, I literally am, uh, thanks to God, a different person. Um, and some of those old tendencies are still there, kick themselves, you know, or or, or show up. But uh, they're very they, they feel very distant. And they feel a lot less powerful over me, and uh, I'm I'm just very very thankful to God for what He's done in my life. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That was such a powerful uh, story when I got to watch that interview initially and and hear that. And I was so grateful that to know that um, that you gave your life to Christ. And you know, people listening to to this show, you know. This podcast is not a quote unquote Christian podcast. It, it's it's a music industry podcast. It's a business podcast. But um, everyone knows that listens knows that I'm a, a believer. I'm a worship pastor, and I'm a CCM artist, and uh, among other things that I do. But that is that is the main part of my life is that I'm I am a Christian. I love Jesus, and He has saved my soul, and I'm grateful to know that He has saved yours. And mm-hmm. um, you know, we put it out there for anyone listening that you know the music industry is a beast. It will rip you to shreds and, and throw you, you know, throw you to the trash as much as it can. Right. Yeah. And, um, 
and the only piece that we're going to have in anything, anything it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter if it's the music or just in life in general. You know, there you said there is an enemy. Satan is is real, and he is. Um, it's all it's all around us. You know, you can't you can't open your eyes a single day without seeing the world falling apart and knowing that there is just you know the world is there's just sin everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to know that that there is a savior that loves us and wants the very best for us. And so then we can take that, that knowledge and take that salvation that we've been given and put it into a musical form, put it out to the world to, for them to hear the hope of the gospel um, is such an amazing gift that we get to be a part of. And so I'm glad to know that I've got a, new, a, a brother in Christ now yeah. that, um, that we can do that together. And so that's exciting. So thank yeah. you for sharing that. I appreciate oh, man. It. Thank you for what you do for sure yeah well thank you so much for being on the show i'm so grateful i'm i can't wait for people to hear this and um you're going to take a, a lot of great information and put it into practice into their lives and into their careers i hope yes and um so thank you for your time and hope you have a great rest of your day you too my friend all right bye-bye all right guys there you have it i hope you had a great time listening to our conversation today i hope you take what we've talked about today and find ways to apply it to your career as well Please be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. And please share it with all of your friends so that we can continue to get this message out to everyone around the world. Remember, Edenbrook Productions is here to help if you need consulting services via phone, Skype, Zoom, or FaceTime. Let us know how we can help you begin to make a living in the music industry.